coppicing. It is remarkable how little we attend to what is passing before us constantly, unless our genius directs our attention that way. Henry David Thoreau. Right, Humphreys, stop procrastinating. You haven't even started yet. I rebuked myself and stepped out into the rain to begin. As always, solviture ambulando. I solve things by walking. It's the gloom that does for me in winter. Seven of my past eight grid squares had been grey and wet in a winter where the rain never ended and the sun never shone. I was sagging like a feeble houseplant, pale and etiolated owing to lack of light. If I could hibernate until spring returned, I would. I dearly wished to dig out my passport and head somewhere far away where sunlight shone hot on my back. California called. Emigration enticed. Marrakesh, maybe? I find the dark half of the year harder to endure every year. But just when I'm about to crack, I recognise tiny changes heralding the approach of spring and the return of all good things. So it encouraged me to hear a definite increase in birdsong this morning, a ratcheting up of woodland activity. Perhaps life was returning, and perhaps my own life was too. For today was Imbolc, Gallic festival celebrating the onset of spring that occurs halfway between the solstice and the equinox. The word imbolc comes from the old Irish imbolc, in the belly, referring to lambing season. It has been celebrated in Ireland since Neolithic times, with some tombs aligned to Imbolc's sunrise and the usual excellent celebrations revolving around fires and feasts. I walked through a motorway underpass that led into the grid square like a portal into today's explorations. The echoing tunnel had been decorated with spray-painted murals, including a blue tit in the branches of a sweet chestnut tree, a beetle under a magnifying glass, and a soaring albatross. An albatross aloft is a spectacular sight, for its 11-foot wingspan is the greatest of all birds. It allows wandering albatrosses to soar and glide for thousands of miles over the southern ocean. Confined to my small map in this rainy, restricted season, I envied their freedom. As well as the usual scrawl of graffiti tags and swearing, there was an all-caps exhortation to DO A BETTER JOB! I resolved to get my curiosity hat on and to do just that. A landmark of each new year for me is when the snowdrops appear, once called Candlemas Bells, Eve's Tear, February Fair Maids or Mary's Tapers. Bunches of the little white flowers were popping up among the green leaves of dog mercury that covered the floor of the country park woodland. The drop in the name refers not to snow but to the flower's shape, like an eardrop or earring. I'm not sure if my fondness for them qualifies me as an out-and-out galanthophile, a lover of snowdrops, but I do like them. They are relatively recent immigrants to our shores from southern Europe, arriving only four centuries ago and taking another two to establish themselves as wild plants. How long must an immigrant be here before they belong and we claim them as our own? In Romania, it is said that the sun was a beautiful maiden who returned to warm the world after winter. One year, winter kidnapped the sun. A hero fought winter to free the sun, saving us from eternal frost. Winter mortally wounded the hero, 
But as drops of his blood fell and melted the snow, snowdrops grew from those droplets. In Germany, they tell the tale that God asked all the flowers to donate some of their colour to the snow. All refused except for the generous snowdrop. In return, it got to be the first flower of the year to bloom. Snowdrops traditionally emerge on Imbolc, and legend suggests they've been flowering then ever since the Garden of Eden. Tiring of the endless winter after her banishment from the garden, Eve was visited by an angel who created snowdrops out of snowflakes to prove that winter does not last forever. They have symbolised hope ever since, and I share that feeling as the earth wakes up towards spring once again. I sat on a wet bench in my waterproofs and looked around. Most of the tree branches were bare, except for the crispy, rustling leaves of a few small beech trees that had held onto their withered leaves through winter, known as marquesans. A woodpecker rattled nearby as the rain rattled on my hood, and I listened to a noisy great tit calling over and over, Teacher! Teacher! Rose hips offered some colour, and each red berry hung with a shining raindrop like Vermeer's pearl earring painting. Colourful too were the yellow winter aconites and the flowers of a prickly gorse bush. Gorse used to be gathered from common land for fuel, fodder, making floor brushes and chimney brushes, and also for dye to paint eggs yellow for Easter festivities. While I sat on the bench, a steady trickle of dog walkers passed me, swinging long-armed ball launchers. The dogs boasted a quirky variety of names and were of all shapes and sizes, like their owners. I wondered when we became so obsessed with pets. Humans have lived alongside animals for millennia, but beyond an occasional elite extravagance, people only began keeping pets in the 18th century. An evangelical zeal towards raising moral offspring led to a number of books encouraging children to rear small animals to help them to learn kindness, commitment and practical nurturing skills. Working class families in cities valued birds for the colour and song they brought into their cramped homes, an early example of yearning for nature in an increasingly urbanised and atomised society. Keeping songbirds became so popular that legislation was introduced in the 1870s to limit the number captured, although a wild bird market persisted well into the 20th century. Today, there are 24 million pet cats and dogs in Britain, with almost a quarter of households having a dog. The world's pets now weigh about the same as all the planet's wild animals. Pets are lovely, but they are yet another accidental nail in the nature coffin. Farmers striving for higher level stewardship by creating fallow field margins for wildlife are often disheartened by dog poo and dog walkers trampling the ground. Dogs allowed off leads reduced bird numbers and biodiversity in an area by more than 35%. And our cats kill more than 200 million mammals, birds, reptiles and amphibians each year. Sir David Attenborough has argued that all cats should have to wear bell collars, while Australia is considering cat curfews to protect native wildlife. Our beloved pets also eat vast amounts of meat, for which worldwide production requires a land area twice the size of Britain. America's cats and dogs alone generate the same greenhouse gas emissions as 13.6 million cars. February may be a drab month, 
but a few flowers do still bloom, including hazel trees with their thousands of yellow catkins. The name derives from a Dutch word for kitten, since the catkins resemble fluffy tails. In some places they are called lamb's tails, a more obvious connection to spring, perhaps. Catkins are unusual-looking dangling flower clusters. There are actually 240 flowers per catkin, which produce terrific amounts of pollen. They rely on the breeze for dispersal and then hope that at least one grain from the cloud of billions of microscopic pollen grains will land upon a female hazel flower. Until now, I had selected each week's grid square at random. But today, I had cheated and chosen where I'd go with deliberation, looking for a landscape to cheer me up. I'd picked woodland, my current favourite landscape. Yet a blob of green on a map doesn't do justice to the land it represents. That's why we need to go out and explore for ourselves, I suppose, rather than resting contentedly in the world of maps. Despite promising ancient names on my map, broad oak wood, great wood, birch wood, the woodland I walked through today had been viciously coppiced and looked like a war zone. Coppicing involves felling trees on a rotational basis and then allowing new trunks to regrow from the base. These grow more quickly than replanting as the trees already have established root systems and are less vulnerable to grazing, shading or drought. Trees can be coppiced indefinitely and it's a technique that has been used for thousands of years to provide timber and firewood. Coppiced wood was used in 3807 BC to construct a Neolithic track across boggy ground in Somerset, known as the Sweet Track. The technique works with most species, but the most commonly coppiced trees are hazel, sweet chestnut, ash and lime. Woodland is often managed as coppiced with standards, where scattered trees are left to grow uninterrupted into mighty standards, before eventually being felled for timber, traditionally for building houses or ships, while the understory is coppiced every couple of decades. Although it appears destructive, rotational coppicing promotes biodiversity and slows the spread of invasive species such as rhododendrons and grey squirrels. Coppicing small areas at a time generates patchworks of open spaces and scrub thickets, as well as broadleaf woodland. Scrub is so important for the growth of new woodland that in the 18th century you risked three months hard labour and lashes of the whip if you damaged it. There's an old saying that the thorn is the mother of the oak. Long ago, large herbivores such as red deer, boar and aurochs, an extinct wild oxen, kept woodland clearings open. But since we killed them off, Coppicing has become a severe but necessary part of woodland management. Without coppicing, woodlands become uniform with few clearings. The full canopy starves smaller plants of resources, resulting in little biodiversity beneath the trees. The successful trees are all of a similar age, so when they die at roughly the same time, it leaves a barren landscape that has to begin again. Coppicing keeps the wood healthy, thriving and varied. Many species would struggle to survive without it. When an area of woodland is coppiced and the trees are felled, new plants germinate and flower in the sudden abundance of sunlight. Their seeds may have lain dormant since the canopy last closed overhead 
or drifted in recently on the breeze. Insects and butterflies are attracted to these open areas and birds and bats follow along. A few years later, as the coppiced shoots regrow, the area is tangled with fast-growing brambles, bracken and honeysuckle, generating havens for muntjac deer, foxes, stoats, weasels and nesting birds. Once the coppice trees reach about 20 feet, they start to outshade and outcompete everything else again. Songbirds nest in the branches and the ground below thins out. After 20 years, the trees are ready for felling once more and the cycle continues. The woods today were not currently as scenic as I had hoped when browsing my map. A sizable chunk of today's walk felt like I was walking through an Amazonian clear-cut. Even so, I was aware as I continued towards the end of the square that I had hiked myself happy. Shoots of recovery had replaced my murky reluctance at the start of the day. There was new life in these coppiced woods, and we would both soon rise and flourish again.